question being asked is, do a set of parents own their children? And the answer is, no, they don't. In some of these cases, the doctors just blew the diagnosis. But I think thrombolysis and the discussion about it has gone way beyond science. The greatest impediment to the correct diagnosis is the prior diagnosis. Exactly right. The bottom line is you can get sued for anything, so do what's right. For the record, I don't want to be quadriplegic. You can shoot me. Write that down. Yeah, it's like baseball. Oh. In this case, three times and you're in. I'll tell you how old we are. We remember when baby aspirin was given to babies. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it is September Risk Management Monthly, and I have with me today Rick Bucutta and Greg Henry. This is our fourth one, boys. I know that, Melvis. The huge success that it's been, the billions of people <laughs> that are listening to the show. It's unbelievable. What are we talking about this month? We're going to start off with what's in the news, and I think little Ricky has something for us in the news. Well, you know, emergency department news, everybody gets this newspaper. Let's see, this is the July issue. The headline is, EP sued for treating child without mother's consent. And yet, Dr. Henry said, I've never seen a case where consent was an issue some previous month there, but here it is out of the blue. So if I could just summarize a little bit about what this case is. This is a five-week-old child brought into an emergency department in Idaho with suspected meningitis per the emergency physician. The mother refused a lumbar puncture. The child was put into protective custody, and an LP was performed. And, of course, it was normal. Thank you. There you go. The suit came five years later. And it's supported by the Center for Individual Rights in Washington. So this is really kind of like a trying to make a point kind of case, obviously, because there was no bad outcomes. Where was the problem here? Greg's going to tell us about that. They contended that the parents' constitutional rights were violated. They point out here that in Idaho, Idaho is kind of one of these states where they've got some issues about immunizations. The child was born by a naturopathic doctor. I don't know what that is. That's about vitamins and botanicals. And, yeah, you, uh, you send the woman out into the forest and if the kid lives. So they natural. basically they say <laughs> Idaho's kind of got a little reputation for being a little counterculture here. And they assert that the doctor exaggerated the risk. And that's kind of interesting because that throws a little twist in this here. But the fact of the matter is, is, you know, in my own personal opinion, this isn't going to go anywhere. But a judge has allowed this case to go forward. Well, Rick, I think we have to get back to basics here. The question being asked is, do a set of parents own their children? And the answer is, no, they don't. You have guardianship of your children. You do not own them. If you talk about any other physical thing that you have, you can chop it up into pieces. You can do whatever you want. You can't do whatever you want with your children. The state feels that they have a right to intervene if they think the welfare of the child's at stake. That's why all of these new laws are coming down about child abuse, beating your child with a belt. There's lots of things you can't do, and one of them is you cannot withhold reasonable and standard health care because that child is not old enough to give their own consent. And I think that I understand why this case is coming up. And believe me, it was front page news in emergency medicine news, and it's talked about a lot. But the bottom line is you can get sued for anything, so do what's right. And reasonable people have to understand that you're going to have patients come in who are marginally on the edge. And you have to use something called substitute judgment, and you have to move ahead. You are, at that moment in time, the protector and defender of that child. No one has retained you to take care of the rights of the parents. They've asked you that you've been retained 
to look after the health of that child. And if on a five-week-old, if there's reasonable consideration that that child has meningitis, and now you're going to do a test which carries with it virtually no risk, why would a parent not want that done? There's an argument that runs through all of this, and that is the argument that goes between autonomy, which we in liberal democracies are in favor of, that is the individual gets to do what they want, versus beneficence, and that is the doctor wants to do what's right. And I believe that this goes back to something we talked about, I think, two issues ago, and I want to restate it clearly, and that's the Cardozo Doctrine. In Scholendorf versus Society of New York Hospitals, 1914, Justice Cardozo, a brilliant man, by the way, then went on from the New York Appeals Court up to the Supreme Court of the United States. In that, he said, those of adult years and sound mind may determine their own health care. That's the Cardozo Doctrine. Adult years, sound mind. If people have altered mental status such that we believe they constitute a danger to themselves, we have the ability to act. And adult years, clearly this child doesn't have adult years, and so there has to be somebody doing substitute judgment for them. And if the parents are not going to give usual and customary medical care, you have an obligation as the physician to see that the child gets that care. Can we just go back for a second? You said something that was profound legally, medically, ethically, theologically. You don't own your kids. You own your Ford Mustang. You own your house. You don't own your children. I've never thought about it in those terms. That is a radical concept, but it's obviously true. Yeah, but it's not a radical concept when you look back over English law of the last 200 years. There's been a continuous series of limiting the power of parents to do things to their children. There was a time 200 years ago or so in England when you could send a child off for 12 hours a day at age 6 or 7 to work in a sweatshop. That was limited. There was a time when we thought that beating a kid with a belt was okay. It's not. I, well, <laughs> I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is a very sort of a gin and jaguar, upper class kind of community. So to us, beating your kid with a belt would be unthinkable. In my community, child abuse is defined as forcing the child to drink a domestic Beaujolais, <laughs> perhaps not reading the third bedtime story. That could be child abuse. But I think the movement has been you have a guardianship but it is not absolute. And that is, if there's something being done to that child which is not usual or customary, and there's a reasonable potential of harm to the child, the state feels it has a right to intervene. That's why there's Child Protective Services. That's why you can call the court and get an order. There's lots of things that can be done here, and I believe that you have to go to bed every night and live with yourself. I mean, if you'd let that child not get usual and customary care. It just so happens that the child had a negative tap, and that's good, and I'm happy the child didn't have meningitis. The point is, if that child had had meningitis, this would have been a life or at least a brain-saving intervention. Well, the other thing, too, is it's not one or the other. In this case, had this doctor believed that this was an issue that meningitis, they could have certainly started the antibiotics, which would have been appropriate for that child's age, Certainly, that would have bought a little time. They did everything right in terms of the formal process of making this kid a ward of the state. I think one of the things that I don't want people to get the issue of, this is an unusual case. It is certainly not a trend, and it certainly should not make any emergency physician say, oh, I better not do that because the mother's going to prevail and sue me kind of thing. Rick, there is no doctrine 
which a emergency medicine resident needs to understand better than the Cardozo doctrine. Here's the reason why. Maybe in twice in my career, I'm going to see a dissecting thoracic aorta. Every night, I have to make decisions about mental capacity. Can this person make decisions? What we're talking about here is moving from the autonomy side of the ledger to the beneficent side of the ledger, and that is doing something because it's good for a patient who may not want it. I worked the last two nights. We had a series of patients who required strapping down. They were drunk. They were mean. They were rude. They were brought in. They had slurred speech. They, rude is now one of the criteria? It, it is as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Fortunately, they weren't ending their sentences on prepositions, or they would have that, had... That would have been deliberate. That would have been deliberate, and that would have been seriously well, you a problem. Well, you had a case that uh, you were talking about at USC. Actually, the person who is directing our show today had this case, and he's sitting in the room here, Michael Erding, who's from England. So Mike had a case... Hello, and- lab. <laughs> Tell me if I'm wrong, Mike. You can scream in the background. But had a case uh, with a guy who was febrile, HIV positive, and didn't want to stay. The assessment at the time of him sort of walking out the door was that he appeared to have capacity, appeared to be you know, awake, alert, oriented, and understand what was going on. And then we had a discussion about it during conference about whether the right thing to do with that guy is to say he's really immune suppressed, he's febrile, there's something drastically wrong with this guy. And he might be okay this second, but one second from now, 10 seconds from now, a minute from now, he might be quite altered. And I took the position of I'd rather err on the side of taking this guy against his will at that point in time, sedating him, doing the limited number of things I need to do to make sure this is not life-threatening, and the probability of him having something life-threatening being quite high, versus the other group of people were saying, well, but right this second, he looks like he's okay. So what would you do? I'll tell you right now, you're splitting hairs here that don't have to be split. There you go. At a That's certain the point. I think that is the point. Well, the, the point is sometimes is you have to make decisions. And, see, I, I love those people who are Monday morning quarterbacks and all this sort of thing. One thing about being an emergency doc is we're like fighter pilots. We can be wrong occasionally. You just can't be in doubt. You have to do something. And what would you want if it was your mother, father, brother, sister? And the answer is what you'd want is what's right and most protective of their life and their general health. And I think that to do less than that is inconceivable to me, that that's what we would do. How can the Center for Individual Rights in Washington have the intestinal fortitude here to say, well, we understand the consequences of meningitis. We understand that it might have caused brain damage, hearing loss, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is that the parents' rights prevail here. You know, that's ridiculous. What it really is, is they're trying to make a point I don't think we should forget about the fact that autonomy is reasonable. And I'll give you a few other cases here where we really need to discuss this. But on the other hand, we have a unique situation. We have a child who cannot say something about their own health care. We have parents who have only guardianship. And we have a physician who's charged. By the way, is he given an exemption from lawsuit if that child goes home and does have meningitis? I can hear that case right now that somehow this wasn't explained. I think the reason that this is made first front page news is because it is so atypical. But we deal with this every day throughout the country in terms of blood transfusions for the children of Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, this is not unique. This case is a little special. I want to thank David Wirtz from Ithaca, New York, who wrote a letter asking us to kind of review this case. And I would like to encourage all of you, if you have cases out there you'd like to talk about or concepts, principles, send them in to us. And actually, I think over the 
next hour, we have a couple of letters here. Yeah, this is an important case to talk about because although when we first started talking about this, somebody said, well, this is ridiculous. We don't even have to worry about it. The fact is that everybody's talking about this. Everybody's worried about it. So we do have to discuss it. The real worry here is not this case because I believe it is quite unique. But it's every single night in the department I have to decide with each individual patient, do they fit the Cardozo doctrine? Are they adult years? Do they have sound mind? And are they making some sort of informed decision? As soon as a patient looks at me and they decide to leave, and all three of us have had this happen, you're trying to get a patient to stay, trying to be examined, they're intoxicated, and as soon as they say, well, I'm going to sue you, as soon as you hear those words come out slurred, do you honestly believe that you're going to be able to defend yourself if you let that person out the door? I have case after case after case where somebody has let them go and has not pushed the point, and then the emergency physician is sued. It's just a rarity that you would ever get into any trouble for acting in the defense of the patient. As I sometimes point out, if I'm ever sued for acting in defense of these patients, I will look at the jury and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, did I hold that patient down? Yes, I did. I did for them which I would do for my mother, my brother, or anyone I truly cared about. If I am guilty, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it is of loving too much. Gregory, I think you've ever rehearsed that a bit. <laughs> I, think that I don't think that came out spontaneously <laughs> at all. You know? But the point is, this is an everyday occurrence. Yep. You've got to feel comfortable with it. And who else needs to be feel comfortable with it is our hospitals and our hospitals attorneys. I mean, they have to understand how we're going to act, and they can't be shy about it or apologetic about it because we're the only place in the society where they bring everybody, a lot of whom don't want to be there, and we have to make some sort of judgments. What else do we have to discuss here, gentlemen? Should we be talking about something clinical, something topical, something thrombolytic-like? I'd like to do a little on thrombolysis because I believe that there are more and more physicians are being sued for this, and... It's interesting. I talked to the risk management person for our insurance company, and she said, at least in their experience, it wasn't a major issue. But then again, I talked to other doctors who I know who are defending. Have you been involved in some of these cases, Greg? I, I think I have either the first or second largest collection of these in the country. It is not an uncommon experience, and the reasons are simply this. The reason this is good fodder for the attorneys is the outcomes are devastating. There is no good treatment. It's a complex issue. You can be damned if you do and damned if you don't. I have people who have sued because the medication was given, and in some way they viewed it with a bad outcome afterwards that the protocol wasn't followed correctly or they weren't given the correct information to make the decision. They didn't realize that grandpa could be worse as well as better from the medication. I have those who have sued because it wasn't given, I even had a guy who sued a doctor because he didn't give it 24 hours after the stroke took place. There's so much controversy surrounding it. And here's the other thing that makes it absolute wonderful fodder for lawsuits, and that is there are major names in neurology and emergency medicine on both sides of this issue. It's not that you have to look very far to find somebody who has a different set of beliefs. In fact, I think thrombolysis and the discussion about it has gone way beyond science. See, I think it's now personalities and entrenched positions and all that sort of stuff. And we've forgotten that what we're here is talking to a family about a therapy for their loved ones. And really, it's how we bring them along to understand what the potential benefits and risks are and what's going to happen. Well, let's use an article that really focuses on this. It's entitled, A Thrombolysis 
in Stroke, a medical legal quagmire written by Michael Wantrod that was published in Stroke in July of 2006. Those of you who are EMA subscribers, we put it into the December 2006 issue. And I reviewed this paper last night because it's right on target to what we're talking about and never really had a sense of how excellent truly this paper is. I think if there's anybody who wants to read anything about this, where the author is so scrupulously fair to both sides of the equation, it's this paper. This doctor is a neurologist at New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York. The preamble of his paper is just extraordinary in terms of making it clear that this is a standard of care issue where, in fact, there is arguments on either side. And he makes the point that in 2000, the American Heart Association upgraded its recommendation for TPA and strokes from being optional to being definitely recommended, despite, in fact, this author acknowledges safety and efficacy concerns that a lot of us have about this. So he acknowledges the $11 million that Genentech gave the American Heart Association. He acknowledges all of these issues with regards to expert panels, looking at the NINDS trial, looking at whether it's a fair, etc., etc. He goes into this really, really well. He also points out that specialty societies have kind of tried to counter this standard of care business by the CAPE statement and the AAEM statement. He's published both of them in his paper. He didn't include the ASEP statement, which is kind of surprising, but these statements both say this is not standard of care. It needs to be done in certain research settings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, by the way, the ASEP statement wasn't just an action of the board. It was actually a council resolution. I mean, this was widely discussed within the college. This was not a small subgroup to the side. This was the major policymaking body of the college talking to this issue that it's not ready for prime time, that there's reasonable concerns about the giving of this drug. Yet despite that, in 2005, the Joint Commission started certifying stroke centers. And the undercurrent underneath all of that stuff has been the Brain Attack Coalition rapid thrombolysis, et cetera, et cetera, or access to some place that can be done. So despite the fact that the evidence has not changed since NINs, they're basically, it's being embraced by a certain subset of the population, and it's being formalized. So now we're going to bypass your hospital and take this patient to the stroke center hospital where they have the capacity to give this life-saving therapy. Well, what we're doing here is preempting a little discussion I'm going to give at National ASAP at the Scientific Assembly and Seattle, Washington in October, in which they asked me to give an hour on lawsuits regarding TPA. Where do we stand now in the country and kind of what's happening? And I would go back to the point that this has gone way beyond the usual way we do science. There are people who are entrenched on this. Their careers are based on this. Their advancement is based on this. And it's gotten way out of control as to what the actual outcomes can expect to be. Well, this fellow goes through the literature and looks at cases, and although he looked at a lot of cases, just summarized a few of them because there's some recurring themes that he thinks that he want to bring up. And before we talk about that, he also noted that there's a new Medicare DRG that adds $6,000 if you give somebody thrombolytic therapy to help compensate you, but that would more than help compensate you since it doesn't cost $6,000. No, it's about three grand, I think. Or two, but in any case... He did go through some cases, and I thought it would probably be a little bit interesting to see what the common threads were. In some of these cases, the doctors just blew the diagnosis. He describes a case out of Westlaw and those kinds of other reporting where it sounded like a classic stroke. The person couldn't talk, couldn't walk, and the guy comes up with some totally bogus diagnosis. So clearly, making the diagnosis is an issue here in terms of 
well, if you don't make the diagnosis, it's obvious after the fact. A neurologist would have told you it was a stroke. Then there are some issues, I think. Well, I think that's a little bit different issue, Rick, because obviously misdiagnosis or inability to make the diagnosis is always problematic in emergency medicine. And once you've made the correct diagnosis, even if you've made the correct diagnosis, the debate then begins, what is the reasonable therapy for the patient sitting in front of you? They basically claimed in the case where the wrong diagnosis was made, it was obviously made later, that there was this lost opportunity to provide this life-saving therapy kind of thing. By the way, this works in both directions, and I have those cases where there's a series of articles over the last six years about stroke mimics and things which look like they're having a stroke, hypoglycemic patients, patients with certain kinds of migraines, that sort of thing, who are then given TPA. And so the misdiagnosis can be in both directions. We've diagnosed a stroke, and maybe it isn't, and we've given the drug. Yeah, Jerry Hoffman tells us a great story at UCLA where they basically had the stroke team down there, and they were about to administer the stuff, and Jerry, in his cryptic way, said, anybody check the blood sugar in this guy? And that was the diagnosis, and he saved the person's life potentially. Because if you have a mentality that says the clock is running, time is brained, et cetera, et cetera, it would be very easy to overlook one of these other diagnoses. Absolutely. So fair to diagnose. I think one of the issues here is involving other people. They've suggested that, well, did you call a neurologist in this case, those kinds of things. And I think that may be a reasonable thing to do. Here's a case where the emergency physician didn't want to give it. The wife says, fine, okay, I want to transfer him to another hospital. And in the process, they get to the other hospital, but the three-hour window is up. In all fairness, I've been involved in several of these cases, the transfer cases. I understand if a hospital does not want to give the drug. In fact, there are probably very good reasons why it should not be given out in a lot of hospitals. Most hospitals in this country at this point in time do not have backup neurosurgical services. They don't have neurologists on staff. They don't have other sorts of backup materials on site to help take care of the patient. But if you honestly believe they meet the criteria, you honestly believe this is a potential treatment mode, then you do have to move with all deliberate speed to arrange a transfer if that's what the family wants. What you can't do is just drag your feet purposefully so that they cannot be given the opportunity. What happens, and uh, Sean Hennison, who's Deputy Director at Our Place, had this case where he had a 91-year-old hypertensive stroke, didn't want to give it, wasn't comfortable giving it, called the local expert. Local expert said, of course you should be giving it, give it right now. And he then found himself in the quandary where he had involved somebody, and that person disagreed with him. Although in fairness, that person that he called is a stroke center zealot, TPA zealot, and has been so for the last 10 years. And whether they represent the most balanced view of this is another matter. Yeah, does Rick, it help you medico-legally, or does it hurt you? Well, see, here's the problem, that I don't know how you would take that information into a court of law and use it to defend yourself. Right. You still have to sit down with a family member, someone, and say, here are the risks. And they have to understand that it is a double-edged sword. If you walk in and say, we have a miracle drug, why grandpa's going to be tap dancing tomorrow, and now they're gorked, then you have a real problem on your hands because what you've done is you've oversold the product and you've oversold what the outcome can be. And I think that's where the real problem is. And by the way, most people do come down on one side of this issue or the other. There's not a lot of room in the middle here, and I think that we should recognize that we're going to be in those situations where we have strong advocates on one side or the other. By the way, 
I don't know which stroke expert this was, but did he want to drive in and examine the patient and carry on the discussion with the family? Because everybody's willing to give a little bit of advice on the side when the rain comes, when the storm hits, when there's a bad outcome. I certainly hope they're willing to stand up and say, yes, I advised the giving of that drug and I had authorized it. But what about that specific question, though? Have you screwed yourself, basically, by calling an expert and the expert saying, yes, give it, and you decide, no? What does the courts think of that when, let's say, that you're the plaintiff and they say that, and you even called the expert, and the expert said, give it, and you didn't give it because you're wanting disregard for this patient's welfare? In all fairness, all you get from an expert, someone else on the end of the phone who may be the higher standard of care theoretically... If they're not willing to come in and handle the case, then they're just giving you ideas and concepts and laying things out. But what they can't do is they don't have a particular patient sitting in front of them. Now, is the patient 62 and going down the tube quickly? Are they 91, as this case is, with hypertension? That sounds like a time bomb to me if you're ever going to give TPA and have a bad result. And by the way, there's some early discussion about blood pressure and TPA and that we should lower the pressure and then give the drug. There isn't one paper that supports that, not one. And what we know is dropping the blood pressure on somebody who needs a certain cerebral perfusion pressure to exist may be the worst thing we can do to them when they're stroking out. Well, you know, that's a good point, Greg, because one of the conclusions of this paper by Dr. Weintraub was that First of all, we need a new study on this drug. The other study was like 1995, I think. But he also said we need updated protocols because the fact of the matter is is that what we're following now are the protocols of the NIMDS trial, which are more than 10 years old, and there are issues now of, well, now we have MRI machines, and maybe we can say something about the size of the stroke and stratify in terms of risk in terms of that variable. He also pointed out that One of the sources of lawsuits is protocol violations. And so if you're going to give this stuff, you need to know what those protocols are. If I had to tell my colleagues one thing, it is you can't do anything halfway. Don't get halfway into it. Don't begin to follow the protocol and then deviate from it. You either believe in giving it or you don't at that moment in time. But the worst thing is to say, yes, we have the drug. I'm going to talk to the family. We're going to do this. And now there's an hour and a half delay in getting the CT scan for some reason that you're unaware of, or you can't get laboratory work back in time, you can't get certain other things done, either do it or don't do it. But the worst thing is to give the indication, and this is where you have a problem in court. Every message you've sent up to that point in time is, yeah, I'll give it, this is a reasonable therapy mode, I believe in it. And then as you start to implement it, you can't follow the protocol. See, I think that's the toughest thing to defend is getting halfway into it and then not meeting the criteria. Well, not meeting the criteria because you can't get CTs fast enough may be one issue and that there may be extenuating circumstances that prevents that from occurring. But not knowing what the items on the protocol are, that's another issue entirely in terms of a lot of them are historical. Well, another one which is not talked about enough is the fact that this is not a one exam and give the drug problem. Without two examinations, without an exam when they come in, and then one after they get back from CT scan, you better be very careful. I have a case going right now where the family says, no, when they got back, I think he was moving his arm better. Well, there's nobody, not even the biggest zealot, who thinks if the patient's improving, they ought to get TPA. Then while you're treating are TIAs in the department. And the debate is going to be, in this lawsuit, 
was the patient actually improving when they got back? And there's no second examination on this chart. What about the other thing that comes up all the time, which is who should be reading these CT scans? A lot of emergency physicians read CT scans of the head, big bleed, no bleed, and then get an overread. Who should be reading these scans if you're going to do it? Should it be a neuroradiologist? Can a normal radiologist do it? We know that most emergency physicians can't do it because these are subtle things we're looking for. Well, you know, in the NINS trial, they were read by neuroradiologists. One of the problems with the study which was being done at Europe at that time, the ECAS trial, was that there was not a lot of consistency as to who was reading the studies. Right now, with the ability to send any film we want anywhere in the world, I don't know why somebody who isn't experienced at reading films would be reading those films. You're right. We don't need third-generation CAT scan machines. We need third-generation radiologists who are actually experienced in deciding what the patient has because there's nothing that looks worse the next day than get a report back that says, you know, that looks like a small bleed. Although I wonder how many cases really have had that as the linchpin, that the fact is that the original scan was read as negative and now somebody's reading it positive sometime thereafter. And I, I don't think that that's that, really I... an issue. And I think that the idea of saying, well, only neuroradiologists can do this if we're going to follow this protocol religiously that NINS did, theoretically you could send it to some kind of neuroradiologist, but our hospital has no capacity to do anything like that. And I even wonder whether do you have a neuroradiologist at USC. Yeah, we have a neuroradiologist, hours a day reading but he's things? not 24 hours a day, and he's hard to find in lots of parts of the day. And we do have teleradiology, but it's also hit and miss, and I think it's true in lots of places. I think the last thing that this fellow said was that I think it is personally the most important and most interesting is this issue about not advising people of the risk and benefit of therapy. There's a $315,000 lawsuit here because people allege that they were not advised of the risk of bleeding, which is kind of hard to conceive of, but in fact, that's what they alleged, and they got $315,000 when there was an epidural bleed, which caused this person to be paralyzed from the neck down, which was a big deal. It's very difficult to know exactly how you get consent in these cases, and there's no one way to do this. If you're asking the patient, how do you know that somebody who's having a lesion in their head at that moment in time actually comprehends what's being said to them and they really understand the discussion going on? Now, you're speaking to the patient and they can't speak back. If their answering is, we can assume that they're probably not going to pick up the nuances of the discussion. Well, I don't know that. Expressive aphasia doesn't mean that they just can't respond to, to in a way that would make you clear that Well, but the point okay. is, you have to feel comfortable with that. Then who do you go to? Who's next? You go to the person who's first in line to get the insurance inherit, policy? Inherit the fortune. Exactly <laughs> right. See, I don't think that's a simple issue. The other thing is, have a list, have something written down if you're going to do this, and just go right down the written points this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. It's a little bit better on this side than that side, but have something which is reproducible that you can talk about if you need to defend it. Well, I think that I'm concerned, frankly, about how the risk and benefits are presented by people who are TPA zealots. I think that the numbers are 12% got better and 6% got worse. Now, if they can't understand the concept of percentages, well, then you have an issue. But that does quantify the magnitude of risk in association with this therapy. 12% got better and 6% got better, and the vast majority get no better, no worse. Let me just be honest. I think that when we speak to patients in the department, particularly somebody whose family member is undergoing a devastating type of medical problem, and you want to talk to them about percentages, they glaze over 
what they're going to do is look at you and say, doctor, what would you do if it was your family member? And that's what they want to know and that's what they want to hear. I think we give them way too much credit for being able to understand fine differences in data, which, by the way, we as physicians cannot always agree on what that data says. I don't think those are fine differences. Everybody understands 10% off at Costco. They understand 10% <laughs> off. Because the issue but not here, when you're giving them a stroke while they're walking through Costco. <laughs> and let me see your ID card, please. <laughs> but the issue here is magnitudinal differences. If people can understand the issue of magnitude, to some degree, it paints it more fairly because I'm concerned about painting a picture unfairly. You should allow them to make the decision. You could say, if it was my family, I don't think I would do it, but everybody has a different view of this. What do you think? Because I'm here. If you want to do it, I'll do it. So in terms of the bleed stuff, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Greg, because people always ask me this, in the study, under the best circumstances, excluding people who were bad candidates, 6% bleed rate. Of those 6% that bled, 50% were dead in the first 30 days, and they were the good 50%? And that's fair. What the data says is that if you got TPA, there was about a 6.2% bleed into the brain. If you didn't get TPA, there was still a 0.6% bleed into the brain. It's not 100% either way. The real difficult part to explain is if you look at the study, and I hear doctors defend this to me all the time. They said, oh, I know it works. I gave it in the department. and They were dancing right in front of me. What I say is you were treating a TIA at that point in time because the NINS data says when they did the data dredging, there was no difference at 24 hours. There was no difference at 48 hours. There was no difference at one week. At 90 days, at three months, there was about a 10 to 12% difference as to who was into the good group and those who were not. But that was at, I believe the study was at 90 days where that difference came out. Well, here's the question. What if you ethically believe that this stuff should not be given and the patient says, yeah, I understand it, but I want it? We have to understand that what we are is we're health advisors to patients. If I really thought there was some sort of therapy which was so devastating and so out of kilter, if the patient came in and said, I'd like you to cut my leg off, I wouldn't necessarily do that because they asked for it. I understand there is genuine debate here on this issue. And if I believe that if I have truly informed them of the risk and really told them what might happen, then I think I've discharged my ethical obligation to the patient. The other thing is sometimes there are questions about the quality of life they want. There may be people who say, I understand there's a chance of bleeding to death, but I wouldn't want to live like this. And you know, that's an individual kind of decision, and I don't have any ethical problem with that aspect of it. Yeah, it's interesting. The studies that you've done on EMA in the past have said that at the time, and you'll have to correct me of the methodology, but they asked people, what would you want if you had the chance of having some devastatingly horrible thing versus death? Most people who don't have the devastatingly horrible thing say, yeah, just shoot me now, I don't want to be a quadriplegic, I don't have a huge stroke, but if you ask people who are quadriplegic, six months, a year, number of years after they've had that, they go, no, life of any form is better than being dead. So these are very difficult. At, like you were saying, at the time, at that instant, asking people exactly what they would want can be very difficult. I think that was a very important paper because it really made the distinction between what you think they want based on your value system and what they really want. Doctors make that mistake all the time. We for years thought, oh, the patient with the sore throat wants antibiotics. 
they actually looked at that study. If you actually spoke to the patient about the ups and downs of antibiotics and why you weren't going to treat at that time, they were just as happy to not get antibiotics if they knew what your thought process was at that moment in time. For the record, I don't want to be quadriplegic. You can shoot me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Write that down. You know, I'm going to have it touched down. You know, there's one point further about this that I'd like to elaborate on. I've been watching some of these blogs, what they call these listservs, going back and forth about stroke centers in particular. And some of these stroke centers do not consent these patients. They say this is an FDA-approved drug. It is indicated for the treatment of these cases. And I have heard, frankly, of physicians who do not, there is no informed consent here kind of thing. I think it's extraordinarily arrogant to take that position. But I can tell you for a fact, and actually, I would like you to write in if you know of this happening where you are, that they don't consent people for this therapy. Say, no, no, this is approved. We're going to give it. There you That's go. extraordinary. I know for a fact that this occurs. That sounds like business building up for me. <laughs> and wow. keep the cards and letters coming. This yeah, is not an want, aspirin. This is. Uh, if you I mean, want to be foolish, go to it. It's like saying to a, the MI patient, we're just thrombolizing you in Tibet. You don't get a choice whether you want to write it out, whether you want aspirin, whether you want to be transferred for the cath lab. We're just going to give it to you. That's yeah. bizarre. Yeah, I think that's very strange, and I would not support that as a, as a way of doing business. That. Greg, I I see something in your hand, and I think it was interesting because one of the issues in one of these cases was that a stroke was misdiagnosed as vertigo, and there was this issue about lost opportunity, $5 million. The person returned several times after the initial ED discharge because they only had vertigo, and it brings up this business about unscheduled return visits to the emergency department because apparently and I've talked to some risk management people recently, it's amazing how the assumption of the diagnosis on the first visit is carried to the second and the third. And therefore, we're not going to do any further evaluation. We've already done the test. We know what's wrong with you. And this person I was talking to talked to me about million-dollar settlements because physicians just don't get it about the significance of the second and third visit. We hear that all the time. The greatest impediment to the correct diagnosis is the prior diagnosis. Exactly right. All intelligent thought stops when a diagnosis is written on the chart. It's like a transfer you get in of broken femur from someplace. Well, they've got a diagnosis. They're waiting to go upstairs. Wait a minute. To break the femur, that's the biggest bone in your body. They've got other injuries someplace which you haven't seen. You kind of have to redo them. In my series of cases, there's no question that return visit is high risk. Because one of two things happened. Number one, we're wrong in our initial diagnosis, which happens to all of us at times. And that doesn't mean that there was negligence, but the disease hadn't declared itself. Or number two, the patient's disease took a different direction or went in an unusual way, or the patient didn't understand exactly what was to bring them back. But my rule is second visit, redo it. Third visit, admit them. I think the third visit admit rule is not a bad one. If somebody's been in three times with the same complaint, bring somebody in from the outside or get some help here because somebody's got a misconception. If that has to go to court, I can understand when the lawyers say, you know, first time we'll give you that one, doctor. Second visit, not so good, but we'll give you that one. But you know, doctor, three times and you're out. Yeah, it's like baseball. In oh. this case, three times, and you're in, according yeah, yeah. to the Greg Henry rule. You're yeah. in the hospital. We don't care what it is. Yeah, you're right. in three times, you come back here, you're in. Yeah, you're in the hospital or out of commission, but there's something not right going on. And every time I see a case come back, I remember there was a study done. I was thinking it was at William Beaumont Hospital. 
10, 15 years ago. And they looked at that exact question on return visits. And the title of the article was Red Flag or Red Herring? And the answer was, it's a red flag. The first time something wasn't picked up or the disease has now changed. More than that, we punish patients for coming back. You see, there's this little time window when everything's perfect. Guy comes in with a cut on the finger and we say, when did that happen? He said, well, you know, maybe it was six hours ago. I said, well, you should have been here earlier. We could sew it up. Well, for those hours, I was sitting in your waiting room waiting to get in here. Be careful. I'm sure, and there is, the occasional patient who comes back ten times who's just plain crazy. But the default position should be you're missing something. And Absolutely. You should have a heightened sense of anxiety when you go and see this. people. what am I missing? What am I missing? What haven't I explained? Be very afraid. I think the toughest part of emergency medicine is whenever we sit around and do grand rounds and we present great cases, the assumption is they actually have some disease entity. That's why we're presenting the case. Where when you're working day in, day out, particularly at community hospitals, where you do see a lot of minor or less intense disease, one can be lulled into thinking they've got nothing. And as soon as you see certain diagnoses on that chart to go along with it, fibromyalgia, <laughs> well, endometriosis, recurrent migraine yeah, headache, yeah. constant low back pain, interstitial cystitis. Now, if you have four or five of those diagnoses, <laughs> I don't care what your chief complaint is. You've got an attitude before you go in that room. And the toughest thing for a doc to do is to wipe out attitude and actually listen to the discussion. I call it the signal-to-noise ratio mm. because when you're getting a lot of noise, it's sometimes hard to hear the signal that's telling you what the disease is. And, you know, when I hear these diseases discussed in lawsuits, I sit there thinking, wait a minute, this guy's fat, he's 52, his father died at age 48 with an MI, he's got uh, indigestion. I said, what's hard to understand about this case? Well, there were personality issues between the doc, his previous visit, his uncle, his wife, his this, that, another thing. I think that's what makes our job hard, is the noise. If we could only get it down to just the facts, we'd all make the diagnosis. Yeah, it's uh, as uh, Jerry Hoffman always talks about with the schizophrenic patient. You know, they come in with crushing retrosternal chest pain and a positive EKG, but he's schizophrenic. He can't possibly have anything wrong with him. That's right. It's like well, they're immortal. It Nothing doesn't even do. have to be medical <laughs> conditions. It could be certain prejudices that you harbor, which may in fact not be prejudices. Lots of people have lots of stories about gypsies that are so good at pushing buttons right. that sometimes you see a case and it's Joe Bimbo kind of thing. No thanks, you know, because you know that your wiring is such that you're going to have a hard time with that patient. Yep. Oh, absolutely. And I'll tell you, it's the smart ER doc who recognizes that in himself when he picks up the chart and says, I know with this kind of case, I have some difficulties. Mm -hmm. It's not having prejudices. Each one of us has a certain set of prejudices. It's recognizing them when you walk in the room that you don't let it interfere with reasonable health care. And I think that's a hard thing to do day in and day out. Okay, and I'll take it back clinically then for a second. So let's say we have the patient who comes in with a stroke. They're less than three hours. We've decided, and this panel, obviously, this group, obviously, would tend to be against TPA. You decide not to give TPA. What is the quick summary of what is the therapy for a stroke? Is it, as I understand it, aspirin and rehab? <laughs> And admission to a stroke unit right. where everybody's in tune to all of the things that have been shown to make stroke patients better. Early ambulation, no Foley catheters. Swallowing. Uh, swallowing yeah, studies yeah, to make yeah. sure you don't aspirate. We have in our database paper after paper after paper that makes it really clear that you will do better if you go to a stroke center. And in fact, 
I believe it is the recommendation of the Heart Association that if you have a stroke, that you be taken to a stroke center. And frankly, if I had one, I would be. But I don't want to go there real quickly. I want to go there within about four hours. Before you get to that point, just understand that all the papers that we have on the advantage of stroke centers really come from the Europeans, the Brits, the Swedes, the Danes. And almost none of those included TPA in, in the studies. What it was, oh, it, right. it was right. nursing care questions and physical therapy questions. It was not a particular drug given. The other thing is it, where we've changed a little bit is we were much more aggressive in the past about dropping blood pressure. Be very careful. I mean, somebody who for the last 60 years has had a certain head of pressure, which is now perfusing their cortical mantle, and you decide to drop that precipitously, I think that is absolutely no longer indicated and nobody's agreeing with that anymore. Yeah, that's another clinical question that comes up all the time about what should their pressure be. And I was looking at the Stroke Association trying to work out their criteria and they've become vaguer and vaguer as time's gone on. Dropping the pressure is something that you should do only under the most sort of dire of circumstances they've got encephalopathy. There's even a couple of studies you've done in the abstracts in the last few years that says not only should we not drop your pressure, we should give you phenylephrine and increase your pressure to perfuse the ischemic penumbra. I don't think the data is clear in that direction either, but I'll tell you the way we used to do this, and Rick and I are old enough, I'll tell you how old we are. We remember when baby aspirin was given to babies. Uh, So you, you know you're an old guy in medicine when you can remember that. But we would hook up people to sodium nitroprusside and and do things which were now, as I look at it, what we were doing was killing off the cortical mantle. I think most people today would talk about lowering the pressure over time, gently, slowly, certain kind of medications, but nobody wants to see a 40 millimeter drop in the perfusion pressure in these patients. Yeah, I think all of the data on this is really, really, really soft. And I do acknowledge that we do have a couple of papers that say, if you raise the blood pressure, now that's certainly not standard of care, but it certainly makes the case that dropping the pressure, if raising it may be therapeutic in the experimental setting, that lowering it is not going to yeah, be Yeah, I, I wouldn't start recommending that. I don't think that's ready for prime time yet. All right, guys, anything else we got on the docket today? I have a very interesting situation. I'm anxious to get the opinion from people from larger hospitals now. Because I fortunately now work in a place which is relatively small. We know everybody who's working in the department that day. And this is an abstract of the problem which came out of ED Management Magazine. And it talks about a situation. And I'll just read you the situation and see what you think. At 9 p.m. March 5th, a woman who had been a patient in the ED at St. Joseph's Hospital in Tampa, Florida, returned there in scrubs and claimed to be a temporary worker. Although she had no ID badge, staff accepted her story that she had lost it. She was allowed to enter the ED and work for 10 hours as a patient care technician. She did a great job. Well, (laughs) well, here's the problem. She didn't. Apparently, her familiarity with the ED lingo, because she's in the ED enough, I guess, as a patient, and the layout of the department helped convince the staff she was one of them and who she claimed to be. However, it soon became apparent that she couldn't take temperatures or read blood pressures. She was told to shadow another worker, but she was allowed to complete her shift. The next day, she returned and asked to be readmitted to the ED, this time as a patient. <laughs> Do we see a potential medical legal problem here, guys? Could this happen at one of Actually, your places? you know what I find surprising is that this doesn't happen more often. At a place like USC, big hospital, there are thousands and thousands of doctors and nurses, and you don't know them. You can't possibly know them. 
And it really it is amazing to me that we don't hear these stories more. Every now and then you hear in the news somebody who was a physician for 25 years. Turns out they don't even have a high school degree. They faked everything, which shows you that you can, most of the time they get better. And the patients love them. That's right. Absolutely. So I'm uh, surprised that this doesn't happen more often. In fact, very few people know, and I should state it here on the tape, that my dental degree in Australia is what I use as my medical degree here. But it was a very good dental degree. <laughs> That's right. It must be a tremendous degree. Well, I think the real problem here is... There were people who raised an issue of incompetence. In fact, they said, well, you're so incompetent, you can't take blood pressures or use the thermometer. They didn't know how to do it. Why don't you just shadow somebody? Now you've got uh, several messages. Somebody who has no identification, somebody who we've picked out as being incompetent. And now we've just said, just shadow so-and-so to the end of the shift, and everything's going to be okay. What I think you have here is a potential. I'd go back through the charts of everybody that they saw or were part of, just to make sure there isn't something there that is a potential problem. There's HIPAA violations all over the place here. People have a right to believe that when they enter an emergency department, there's going to be a credentialed staff of some kind who's going to hear their stories, get their most personal, intimate details of their lives, all these sorts of things. This patient had no right to any of that stuff. Well, you know, but this case, Greg, is very similar to this one where the mom's suing five years after for the lumbar puncture. It is just an outlier. It's three standard deviations off the curve. Frankly, we could use the help. And <laughs> I mean, our staff doesn't want to be there. This is somebody who at least wants to be in the ER helping out. Come on, you know? Well, we actually had, when I was a student many years ago in medical school, they finally did catch a guy who for five months had been coming in to women's hospital and doing pelvic exams on women at night. And, of course, he's wearing a white coat and scrubs. And a headlamp. And, and a headlamp. <laughs> and some woman actually called the nursing station during one of these examinations. And this is somebody who was in the maintenance department who, in the evening, became all of a sudden a gynecologist. Now, that brings up another thing that's very topical for us in L.A., and then maybe Greg can say what some of the implications of what's going on. This will date the tape, and so you'll get this in September, but yesterday... A very large hospital here in California called Martin Luther King Jr. Hospital, which has gone through a series of issues in the last 10 years. It's a hospital with quotes around it. I think it is okay to say, and this is my opinion, that this hospital has been a disaster for 20 years. Finally, after another review by some group, and I don't remember whether it was Jake or some other group, they basically closed the ER down, and in a four-hour time frame they said, we're shut, no more patients, whoever's here has to leave. And now all these patients get sent to the local hospitals, which potentially could create sort of a nightmare for the hospitals in the area, ours being one of them. The issue that brought up for me is, let's say that I'm at USC, and let's say that Martin Luther King closes, and let's say it becomes completely overwhelming at USC, and I'm doing everything I can, and it's kind of like the giant plane crash next to your community hospital. What standard of care will you be held to during that time of crisis? Is it the same standard of care as before, what a similarly trained emergency physician would do under those circumstances? What you will be held to, and I think that it is not what a reasonably trained emergency physician would do, it's what he would do being presented with the same situation. For example, when I was very young, I had a bus of kids, a camp bus. It wasn't the hemophilia camp bus, <laughs> but it was a hemophilia camp it, yes. it was not hit by the Jehovah's Witness camp <laughs> bus, no. But it was hit by a cement truck, actually. I had 13, 12 to 14-year-old kids. I was the only doctor there moving from bed to bed. No other doctor in the hospital at that moment, and I'm calling on the phone begging people to come in. 
did every one of them get the perfect classic trauma examination as we might do if I presented one patient? Absolutely not. Seven of them went to the operating room within the next four hours. Worst single night of my life in the emergency department. But the question is, did I do what was reasonable under the circumstances? After all, if disasters hit, Katrina took place in New Orleans. Are they going to give out the same care that I'd give in Chelsea, Michigan, with a normal flow of patients? Absolutely not. Was it reasonable under the circumstances? And that's what you're going to be held to. Did you do reasonable things? Well, I'm concerned that this disaster that was created was really administratively created. It wasn't a jet plane that crashed. Somebody made a decision that it would be better for these patients to be dissipated to other emergency departments than to be seen here for what we think to be care that may not be consistently up to par. Yes, they had some bad cases, but they also had a very competent emergency group working the cases. And the idea of artificially creating this disaster of sorts, I think, muddies the waters here. And I think if somebody didn't get decent care because your hospital tended to be overwhelmed because they arbitrarily, or, or it will be alleged it was arbitrarily done, shut down this emergency department. I think it's a different matter. Let me just take a wild guess here that the people involved in shutting this down was a government agency of some kind. Sure. Right. Which have conveniently arranged to be essentially non-culpable. They're non-suable. It's like the court system. They've set it up so that if a judge makes a ridiculous ruling, well, he's got judicial protection. If you and I do it, you're in big trouble. Greatest example of that was when I was sending patients out to the probate court to get them put into the state hospital, psychiatric problems. If I didn't send them out and they went out and killed themselves, I've got to defend myself. The judge in that county at that time, who was a strict civil libertarian, would release multiple of these people who then walked out in the middle of US-23 and were hit by a truck. He could not be sued for his judicial decision. And so I'm sure this is the kind of thing where other people will make decisions which affect lives and it won't go well. By the way, being in that position as a reviewer on a panel for the Joint Commission at one time to review certain of these hospitals, we bent over backwards to keep them open. We understood that something was better than nothing. And I don't know all the details of the Martin Luther King case, but there's got to be something egregious going on here because in general... We try and keep these things running as best we can. Now, Rick has a very interesting letter for us that will take us toward the end of this tape. Give it to us. This is from David Esler, and it says he's from Vancouver, British Columbia. What is well, it? We like, we like British Columbia. What, hey, it's good there, eh? What's he asking some malpractice question? It's Canada. They don't have any malpractice yeah, up there. I can tell you. This is a rather long letter, but let me get to the heart of this matter here. He says, my question is, how many investigations should we do in a patient with non-classical entrance complaints was not clearly very sick or very well. As an example, a middle-aged man with malaise, dyspnea, back pain, chills, and normal vitals. Do you say, you got the flu, go home, take some Tylenol and fluids and come back tomorrow if you're worse? Or do you need to do a zillion lab tests, including D-dimer, CT abdomen, chest, lumbar puncture, internist consultations, etc.? Clearly, this patient could have just about anything in the book or, in fact, nothing really wrong with him. And this brings up an, an interesting point because as I was talking to my risk management friend at the insurance company, one of her concerns was failure of doctors to do careful, detailed evaluations of patients. Yet, that's a malpractice insurance company talking where they don't want to pay out any money and they don't want you to miss anything. 
Everybody talks out of both sides of their mouth on this issue now. There's been a fundamental shift, and it's a philosophical shift from when I was young in this business. 30 years ago, in the emergency department, we decided who's coming in and who's going home, who's sick and who isn't, who needs specialist care, who doesn't. Now, if a patient even gets near the door to being admitted without the entire case being worked up, wrapped up with a bow tied on them, the diagnosis made, we draw lines on the abdomens for the surgeons and say, cut here on them, there's something wrong. And I think this is a philosophic question. I think what's happened in the emergency department is we are now the de facto answer for everything. And the truth is that prevents us from really taking care of emergencies. I think we've gone way overboard in working up cases which are internal medicine type, logical, outpatient workup of disease. And when you're with this patient, just remember there's somebody else down the hall who's going bad that you're not with. And when that situation happens, you've got problems on your hands. I think what the real question that this letter is asking is what defines a good workup? Is it good history, good physical exam, good charting, good medical decision-making, or is it all those things plus tests? Well, well, I think it's about, it's not necessarily good, but it's, I think maybe the question is adequate. And what he's describing here is a person who could have the flu or could have the beginnings of something really quite serious. Well, of course they could have the beginnings of something quite serious. That's not the question that's to be answered in the emergency department. I think the question to be answered is, what is your status today can you be worked up? Can we finish the workup as an outpatient? Can I get you into the correct location for care at some point in time? And as those resources dry up, we become by de facto the center to answer those questions. I don't pretend for a second that emergency care should be the be-all and end-all of all health care in the United States. I think that's inappropriate. But by the same token, we should at least do excellent history, excellent physical for the problem presenting to decide where they need to go from here. But to work up everybody, first of all, we don't have the resources. And certainly when I'm busy and I average 15 minutes a patient, I've got to use that time realistically to those interventions, which I can do the most good for at that moment in time. But I can hear the people screaming out there. Listen, I can hear them screaming. Saying, okay, Greg, that's fine, but can I use that as a defense? Well, when I sent this guy home and it was something bad and I didn't have lots of tests, well, I said, I don't think this guy's got much. Go see your primary it, care Listen, doctor. it's been my experience of almost 2,000 cases that it's rarely the ordering of a specific test, which is the cause of the malpractice. Sometimes it's not getting people into the system. Sometimes it's not setting them up to get the other care that they need. It's not just the doing or not doing of a test. Although, Greg, you have to acknowledge that the leading cause of these malpractice suits is failure to diagnose. And this person is talking about a person who could have something potentially seriously wrong. It's like the chest pain patients. How can you send out anybody pretty pretty much that has non-chest wall pain and say, it's not your heart? You can't do that, actually. I mean, you're just you're playing the odds, and you'll be right 90% of the time or 97% of the time. Or 99.5% of the time if you've done three sets of enzymes and three EKGs and you've set them up for their stress test. Right, I, and I'm suggesting that that does not occur in the majority of these patients who are going home, and the doctor is giving them a certain sense of assurance based on not a lot of factual information. I'll tell you the biggest shift that I've seen is that when you start to believe that you're making the final diagnosis on a lot of these patients, you've made a mistake. What we're doing is we're dealing with the initial 
diagnostic impression, the impression of what they are at this moment in time. And I think it requires some candor between the doctor and the patient that further evaluation may be required. The best example of that is abdominal pain. If you're honest with yourself, and I believe the Annals has published a dozen studies somewhere at this point in time about when people leave the emergency department, how often do we have the exact diagnosis in abdominal pain? I think the answer is probably 50% of the time or less. It's have we warned them about what it can be? Have we gotten them into a pattern where they can be rechecked, reseen, refollowed, brought back? But if you start to believe that everybody with diarrhea needs to have a CT scan of their belly, we don't think about all the harm we cause both financially and, quite frankly, with our diagnostic testing. You don't shoot CT scans of the abdomen in children repeatedly without paying a price somewhere down the road. You know, it's very interesting. If they had the effects of that radiation in a week and we were sued for it, then we'd think about that. Now that it's going to be 20 years down the road before they develop their leukemia, all of a sudden we don't think much about that. So to me, it always comes back to how do I best chart that then? So if I see this guy and I say, look, right now he's got vague complaints, but his vitals are fine. He seems well to me. We've had a discussion He's happy to go follow up with his primary care doc. He can come back here at any time if there's a change in his status. Is that a pretty defensible chart without having to go on and do D-dimers and PE workups and that kind of stuff? It's just good charting and good discussion with the patient? Absolutely. It's what the reasonable doctor would do in the same or similar circumstance. And it's also where they present. If you've presented to the Endrican Clinic at the Mayo Clinic, I think there's a different expectation of what may be done to work up your complaint of weakness than if you're coming into an emergency department in Ishpeming, Michigan at 2 o'clock in the morning. And I think that we should recognize that there's a difference in that. You can do a muscle biopsy in the emergency department. I don't think so. Well, sometimes when I put IVs in, I do that. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's not intentionally. Okay, we're making our call today to Graham Billingham. We've got Graham on the line. Graham, I'd like to welcome you to the call. I think a little introduction is in order because your credentials with regards to risk management are truly extraordinary. We met probably 8, 10, 12 years ago when you were the chief medical officer for a group out here in California called EPMG, and your job was basically to go around developing and enforcing best practices, reviewing all of litigation, optimizing charting, and all kinds of things are related to making doctors do their job well. And you did that full-time for a bunch of years, and subsequently now you are the president and CEO of Epic Insurance Manager, so that you now are on the other side of the aisle basically trying to limit your company's expenditure of dollars. And I can't think, frankly, of a better person to ask about topic that we've been dealing with this month, largely related to the use of TPA and strokes and litigation around that. Graham, what's been your experience in this regard? Well, thanks very much for having me on the program. What I'd like to do is share just a couple of global observations in terms of malpractice frequency trends that we're seeing with regard to thrombolytics and stroke, and then maybe share with you some of the take-home observations on what we can do to control the losses and prevent them before they happen. As everybody knows, the four things that we get judged against are duty to treat, which for this conversation is a given, standard of care issues, which we'll come back to, causation, which is obviously the link between was there something that the physician may have done that actually led or contributed to an untoward outcome. And then the last is the damages. And unfortunately, both with myocardial infarctions and stroke, the damages remain high in emergency medicine. 
What we are seeing in the marketplace is really a switch. Traditionally, we have been sued for a failure to diagnose and a failure to treat, and we are seeing a large amount of cases come now from the delay in diagnosis or the delay in treatment. And that's a really important take-home is that the clock is truly ticking in making this diagnosis, and if you're going to do something about it, you really have to move pretty smartly. On a national level, claims frequency across all specialties is down, but acuity is not. And acuity, in, again, in both myocardial infarctions um, and in stroke patients remains high, as do the damages. The four things that we're getting sued for frequently in our own practice pattern, I'll tell you the ones that have struck out are definitely failure to diagnose and failure to treat. Secondarily and increasing are the delay in diagnosis or the delay in treatment or the failure to give TPA if indicated. The third one would be failure to transfer a patient in a timely fashion if you are unable to do this at your own facility. And the fourth one is really the bleeding complications. The failure to transfer in a timely fashion and the delay, those are the two that we're seeing emerging. I think when you talk about switching gears for a minute, what we can do, there's some very good articles, and I know you've spoken about them already, that point out that the standard of care with regard to this matter is not clear in the literature. And clearly, you can line up experts on both sides of this equation. I think what's important for us is really what's happening with the standard of care at your facility at a local and regional level and not so much at the national level where there seems to be some confusion. And the standard of care is different depending upon your practice setting. If you're at a large academic tertiary referral center where you have complete stroke teams with good backup, fast ability to get MRI and CT scans in the middle of the night and such, you'll be held to a higher standard. But if you're out in a rural facility, and I'd like to give you a quick example of a case that happened a couple of weeks ago where you don't have access, then you are going to be looked at at what is the standard in your regional area. So let me give you an example. We have a local emergency department up in Sierras that has one emergency physician on There is no other backup in the hospital, does not have stroke team, they don't have the capability of ICU capability, so he knows that he's going to have to transfer this patient up front. And the issue there is the CT tech is on call in about 40 minutes from the hospital. So if you know that in advance that you have to transfer a patient, what we would like to see and what we would recommend and certainly will help decrease exposure is that you have transfer agreements with the receiving facilities that are going to take these patients anyway. And one of the first questions is to get the CT scan, yes or no, keeping in mind it's going to be at least a 40-minute delay for somebody to come from home and start up the machine and get the CT scan, or do you just call the helicopter and get the patient moving? We would like to see a reciprocal agreement in place, and the time to figure this out is not at 2 o'clock in the morning, but to do it go down there and meet with them, understand what their stroke team protocols and expectations, and package the patient accordingly. They may say to you, just based on symptomatology and a good exam and the time frame window, go ahead and send the patient without the CT scan. But all that's agreed upon up front. So I think that decreasing practice variability at a local location and having agreements in place in order to get timely transfers is critical in mitigating risk up front. The second piece is really the documentation. I think we spend a lot of time on forms, and we miss the boat on two fronts. I think templates are great to capture a large amount of data, but what's really critical and important when you transfer a patient or you're going to give thrombolytics is the conversation that takes place, not so much the form between the patient, the physician, and the family. So there's clear understanding, and even beyond the template, maybe one or two sentences that talk about 
the patient's questions have been answered, the people understand the risk. Those are critical in the defense of a malpractice lawsuit if there should be one. And the other is your clear medical decision-making. And we see more and more template EDIS systems in place. And if I could say that there was one hole in that documentation, it's really the thought process of the emergency physician. Was it indicated? Was it not indicated? Why did you think that? And what was your differential diagnosis? And I'm not talking about readings of dictation, but just two or three crisp, clear lines that let everybody know downstream why you pursued the course of action that you did. Transfer agreements we've talked about. Again, the critical issue there is to figure it out before there's a critical need to do that. And then the last one is a growing trend that we're seeing. We have focused for the last quarter of century on high-risk clinical disease topics in emergency medicine, and those top 10 remain the same top 10. The second issue is there's been a huge amount of focus in the last five years on things like, I'm sorry, customer satisfaction, and improvements in communication. The third area, which I think going forward we'll need to spend a lot more time on, and that is ED operations that pose malpractice risk. There's a tremendous amount of focus on P4P, reimbursement, length of stay, but really have you ever walked through your emergency department with a risk prevention hat on or malpractice prevention and say, what is going on operationally here that may contribute to exposure? And I think that's a great way in your own practice environment to uh, get out in front of it. For example, do you have a stroke team? If you don't, what's your radiology turnaround? Is there a technician on call? All of those things are operational elements that carry malpractice exposure, but they're not necessarily clinical mistakes that we make. So again, just to reiterate, if I had to place emphasis on a couple of high bullet points to mitigate this kind of exposure is decrease practice variability in your own location, have transfer agreements in place, understand that the clock is ticking, clearly articulate in your documentation the conversation with the patient and their family and your medical decision making, and lastly, walk around your emergency department and look for operational elements that may be contributing to your overall malpractice exposure. Well, Graham, you summarized it really nicely, although what about physicians being aware of the inclusion and exclusion criteria because in the past there was a lot of stuff saying that a lot of people who got therapy, there were protocol violations and I don't think you want to step into that quagmire if in fact you gave this drug and there it is, there is a clear-cut protocol violation, there's a bleed. You don't set yourself up in a very good position when you do that. I think it's a great point and that is clearly when we talk about decreasing practice variability, sometimes you have some interesting conversations about quote, cookbook medicine, unquote. I think for some high-risk complaints following a set protocol or some standards, it's probably a good idea so that everybody in that particular facility is, certainly for high-risk medicine, is practicing and staying the court. But the caveat it goes with that is that you have to follow the guideline if indeed everybody thinks that that's at the local level the way that the medicine should be practiced. And one of the quick ways that we do that in our operation is we measure it. We do like what we call a quick hits list. We don't study it for committees and great lengths of time. We just take the five last charts on a transfer, for example, or on a decision for giving thrombolytics and stroke patients and quickly reviewing them. And we do that consistently throughout the year so that you don't just do it episodically and make sure that everybody, if there is violation or deviation from the local standards, and I think the article pointed out when they looked at it, it was as much as 70%, that's where you will be held accountable. So I think one is to get consensus 
with regard to the local group and what you're going to do. But the second is you have to then follow that protocol. And the easy way to, to measure that and create accountability is just start looking at the charts, the last five transfers that went out, and it'll be pretty clear whether or not there's deviation from the guideline. Graham, everything you've said is right on target. I would like to make one other comment, and that is when you're going to document what you told the family, don't use euphemisms. Don't get involved in phrases like, there could be a bad outcome. You need to say things like, they could bleed, they could be worse, they could die. In the very famous Harris v. Oak Valley Hospital case, the entire question revolved around what was told the family and their view of it. And the chart in that case basically saved the physician. And that's because he'd used words that the common person could understand meant that this could be a bad outcome. And I think that, that we tend to be very much afraid of offending or shocking patients. We shouldn't be, and we should document what we said on that chart because this isn't a clear-cut therapy. There are bad outcomes, and in the best of hands, in the men's trial, one in every 19 patients bled to death in their head. We've never had an emergency medicine, a drug, that carried with it that big a downside. And I think that having seen cases on both sides, failure to give, failure to transport, failure to involve neurology, and complications of the therapy and hemorrhage after the TPA and the informed consent, believe me, this is not a simple question. One other comment along those lines is, I don't think that emergency physicians should have a comfort set anymore on admitting the patient. The classic teaching and emergency medicine for a long time has been, well, if we can't figure it out, let's just admit the patient. We are seeing more and more malpractice cases against emergency physicians on admitted patients. And what the plaintiffs are arguing is, did you do everything you could have in the emergency department? Did you get the consult? Did you give the TPA? So I think that it's just a caution flag that just because we admitted the patient, did you admit them to the right level of care? Did you do everything that you could have done before they were admitted? So again, particularly with regard to TPA, we will be held accountable for delay. And if the decision is either to transfer the patient or to give it, just to realize in the back of your mind that the importance of documenting your thought process in the note, as well as getting a move on and making sure that things don't contribute to an unnecessary delay. Graham, I want to get you to give me a concrete example of a medical decision-making note, because we talk about this all the time, but I'm not sure that I know what a good medical decision-making note is for one of these cases or in general. Good question, and I'll just be one out for you. In this case of Mr. Johnson, the decision has been made not to give thrombolytics. Mr. Johnson is outside the therapeutic window. His exam is consistent with the stroke. However, at this time, the risks outweigh the benefits. This has been explained to the patient's primary care physician, the patient and their family members, and something simple and short like that. So you want the documentation needs to be consistent with your local agreed-upon protocol. So you want to articulate what the decision is you've made, why you have chosen it, the fact that it's consistent with your protocol, and that you consider other diagnoses. Graham, thanks very much. Actually, we probably would like the opportunity to call you in the future because of your really unique knowledge and position about this stuff. So if you would be up for it, we'd like it too. You bet. Love to do it. Well, we're coming to the end of this tape. Shall we do a little wine of the month 
Well, this is the ugly part of the tape I really care about. Okay. Well, unfortunately, this has been a confrontational tape. I mean, we've had TPA, we've had consent questions, and now we're even going to have a problem in the wine segment. Oh, no. Yes. We have somebody who's writing to us. The wine segment. Is that David Essler? Yeah, David Essler. At some point, you asked about, he's mentioning it to us, he asked about Two Buck Chuck, the Charles Shaw wine phenomena. Uh, he's the Canadian, by the way. It's not available in Canada, therefore I haven't done the taste test, but I understand it could be pretty good. Here's a quote from Wikipedia, and then he, of course, sends us the Wikipedia piece on this. All I can say is this. I'm so glad that Jerry Hoffman is not here today because just the mention of two-buck Chuck, I'm sure he would have opened a vein and, and bled out in front of us. What I can say is this. Uh, have I had two-buck Chuck? Yes, I have to admit to that, particularly when it's the third or fourth bottle being brought out. It's pretty yeah. good. Henry's rule is always your always best lead, bottle first. Lead with the best bottle. Yeah. Lead with the best. You gentlemen are, are we learning. Are learning. <laughs> you are learning. Even we can learn. <laughs> yes. Well, it's uh, interesting tonight that some of the residents and some of the faculty are coming over to meet Greg because he's in town here in L.A. And I'm actually going to do a double-blind randomized Chardonnay taste test. I have a $2 bottle of wine, a $5 bottle a $10 bottle and a $20 bottle, and we're going to do a little test and see who wins. I think that is actually the test. If you don't see the label and you just taste it and you like it, it goes down well with you, it doesn't matter how much it costs per bottle at that moment in time. That's why, you know, in the in the other segments, we've been featuring wines that were really not as much money as a lot of the, of the wineries around them and turned out just as good as stuff. And if David wants to try Two Buck Chuck and enjoys it, God love him. All right, gentlemen, uh, thank you for playing. That was the September issue, and I guess we'll discuss more next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye.